Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. <clears throat> for if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. We're in our series, Gospel Driven. What does it look like to be gospel-driven people in a gospel-driven church? And this morning we enter into Romans 5, which is an incredibly profound and rich passage where it talks about the gospel, but I want to talk about the meat in the middle of the sandwich, if you would. So the, 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 the whole thing uh, has these three rejoices, and I want to I mention these three rejoices to us. First, in verse 2, we read, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the first and the last one makes sense. The one in the middle seems weird to me. How in the world do we rejoice in our suffering? And that's the question we're going to try to look at this morning because we don't just want to know the gospel, we want the gospel to permeate our lives so that whatever is going on and whatever decisions we're making, it has an impact. And I think, I think that there's a direct connection to why Paul is talking about suffering in the middle of this passage that is so profoundly about the gospel. I think there is a connection. And it's my hope that we can look at the gospel and how we might suffer well when we're dealt with challenges in life. Now we start off with a major problem for nearly everyone in this room, and that's that we live in America, which primarily means that we are prosperous. And prosperity is always a spiritual liability. Prosperity creates FWPs. Some of you know what an FWP is. It's a first world problem. So an FWP is, I want to watch TV, but the remote's over there, and I'm all the way over here. I'm just as likely to call out for somebody to get the remote as go get it myself. That is a first world problem. 
There's a lot of videos out there that mock first world problems. One of them that I watched recently, it starts off with a camera on this young lady who's covered in a blanket and she's shivering and you're not sure where she is. And, and she says, I, I'm so cold, I'm so cold. And so is she out on the street? Is she homeless? It pans out and she's on her sofa. And she goes on to say, I'm so cold. Somebody turned the thermostat down to 72 and I need it at 73 or more. That is a first world problem. In the next scene, in the very next scene, you see a guy who's there and has deep anguish on his face and, and he's, he says, I, I'm, I'm starving, I'm starving. And then it pans out to see him staring at the refrigerator. There's only leftovers in here. How am I going to survive? In the next scene, there's a man who's crying and you see that he's in deep tears and sorrow up close and he says, very earnestly, nobody cares about me. And then it pans out to show him at his computer and his definition of nobody cares about me is, I posted something hours ago and nobody liked it or shared it. Nobody cares about me. These are first world problems, right? And while we laugh about them, we know that the reality is that many of us have a very low tolerance for suffering and how we define a bad day or the challenges in life are are pretty minimal. And some of that is just because we are prosperous people. You know, in another way of looking at it, um, kids, you guys have been out of school for what, like three weeks now? Is that right? Three weeks about? My guess is, because you guys are more mature than this, none of you have said out loud, I'm bored. Parents, you can attest to that, right? Your kids have not said, I'm bored yet. It's only been three weeks. To say I'm bored is a prosperous problem. That is a problem of somebody who expects ease and fun and entertainment all the time. Nobody in here, I know, has that problem. Certainly not three weeks into the summer. But if we could even come to the point of saying I'm bored, it's because we live in such prosperity and ease, we expect it all the time. And you know, the reality is we are in control of so much of our lives. We can control the climate in our car, in our house, in our workplace. Food is not a problem. We can buy it, we can make it. Our biggest problem is which thing do I want and whether I actually like what's in the refrigerator or on the shelves. Each of us nowadays is the very CEO of our own corporation. We run and manage a small company in the way we relate to others, the way we put ourselves out on the internet, the way we control everything going on in our lives. And largely, our prosperity leads to confidence in ourselves. And so we don't see our need for God. Our assumption is success, ease, health, prosperity. And our discomfort bar, and I know this because this is true for me, is very, very low. In other words, we are not equipped to suffer. So we can't even begin to say, how can I rejoice in my suffering? But that's the question we're asking. How can we, even as prosperous people, people who live in the first world, Americans, how can we suffer well? How can we respond well to suffering at all? And look, I don't want to be trite about this because I know that there is a lot of suffering and all of us have dealt with it on some level or another. 
We have all dealt with the pain and challenges of life, financial difficulties, periods of unemployment, the dreams that you had broken because you never got married or your marriage fell apart or your kids don't want anything to do with you anymore or you never had kids. The challenges of loneliness or extended loneliness and that periods of just deep anguish of wanting to be connected to other people and feeling like an outsider. Sickness, everything from just dealing with the cold to a broken bone to many of you who are dealing with sicknesses that are ongoing and life-threatening, even in this room today. We have dealt with evil and injustice. One in four people, one in four Americans have been physically or sexually abused, and that's probably a low number. One in four people in this room have dealt with evil and pain at the greatest level. Some of you, even today, are very aware of your mortality because you have lost somebody very close to you or you're dealing with your own mortality right now. Suffering is a reality, and anything that I try to enter in on this is going to sound trite. But the goal this morning is not to answer the big philosophical question of why, but to enter in a little bit on how. How might we respond to suffering? How can the gospel help us? So first I want to look at how we might respond to suffering apart from God, and then look at how the gospel and Paul in this passage gives us another pattern for dealing with suffering. So what are some ways we might respond to suffering if we're doing it apart from God, apart from the gospel? You know, one way is the Stoic's response to suffering. That's detachment or manliness. So it's sort of Seneca drinking the hemlock rather than escaping when he had a chance to escape from Athens. Or as one gentleman that I knew who died a number of years back, who was a former special forces operative in Vietnam, when I talked to him about being a special forces uh, soldier, I said, tell me about some of the things that, that you engaged in. And he talked about some horrible experiences that he dealt with, some of the pain he dealt with, some of the deprivation as a special forces officer in Vietnam. And I said to him, how, how did you deal with pain like that? I've never experienced something like that. And he described something to me. He said, I have this place in the back of my mind. It's a closet. And I take the pain and I put it in that closet and I shut the door and lock the key and then throw away the key. And I had no idea what he's talking about. I said, what, what, what you, you saying when you're dealing with the pain, and he was describing various pains he had dealt with, he said, you have a place in the back of your head where you put extreme pain and suffering so that it no longer bothers you? Stoic detachment to pain. My response is to yell and scream. It's to curse or to cry or to blame somebody. And he has this place back here that he places his pain. And the Stoic response would say, yes, find that place of just letting it go. The Stoic response has its roots in Nietzsche's nihilism. That God is dead, there is no God, he can't be proved scientifically, and therefore neither can purpose or meaning in life. And if there's no purpose or meaning in life, then neither is there any purpose or meaning in your suffering. So get over it. I personally don't like the Stoic response. A second response is the moralist's response. This is one I'm more familiar with. 
See, the moralist in all of us is that side of us that wants everything to be based on merit. If I do good stuff, good stuff should be paid back to me. Or it's the karmic response. If you do something bad, you might get some bad come back to you. Now, the problem with this is that we apply this to suffering, and ultimately, as moralists, we're going to end up blaming somebody for our suffering. We'll either blame ourselves because God's probably making me pay, or I guess I deserved this sickness. Or we're going to blame God in anger and disbelief at what's happened to us when suffering comes. We'll reject God because he must be getting me back, and I cannot believe in that God. Somebody who was very close to me decades ago dealt with the loss of their own brother in this same manner. Losing a brother far too young, he had a very hard time believing that God could exist. How could God exist? If there's any justice in this world, why did he let my brother die like this? And his natural response was not just to blame God, but to turn from him. A third response to suffering apart from God is the individualist response. That's the classic American response. It's the response of focusing on me. And I'm going to have to say that we as Americans will tend to be the worst sufferers, partly because we expect success and ease and a first world problem is going to ruin our day, so real world problems are going to destroy us and undo us. Any amount of discomfort is too much. I have had the unfortunate series of two cars over the past few months that have not had air conditioning. I hate heat. I am an angry person with heat. And for two separate vehicles that I've been driving around, both have had the air conditioning out. That is unfair. And instantly, all I can think about is me and my suffering. The air conditioner's out in my car. When we are individualists, we turn in on ourselves. We're narcissistic with our pain and suffering. And that ends up resulting in depression. Very often, and actually very naturally, we turn depressive in states of suffering or challenges in life. I find that it's one of the first things I fall into when dealing with overwhelming challenges. I get depressed. And look, on some levels, it's normal. It's normal to not say, oh, yippee, bad stuff. But apart from others and apart from God, we will spiral downward further and further. An inward and self-focused, dark and isolating spiral. And that is not a good way to deal with suffering. Now the reality is, all of us, even those of us who profess faith in God, probably fall in and out of a lot of these ways of responding to suffering apart from God. At at moments we're trying to toughen ourselves up and and stoically deal with our suffering. At at other moments we're completely self-absorbed and depressed. And in the very next minute we're moralistic and blaming ourselves or God or somebody else for our pain. So, so what does a gospel-driven response to suffering look like? Well, Paul gives us a pattern, doesn't he? In verses 3 through 5, he starts talking about suffering. He says, we rejoice not only in God, but we rejoice in our suffering 
And he has four words that pop up here. And I'm going to read the passage here, verses 3 and 4 in particular. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Suffering, endurance, character, and hope. So let's look at each of these as a gospel pattern, a gospel-driven pattern of response to suffering. The first we see in this, in this series, this pattern, is suffering itself. A gospel-driven approach to life, actually, is going to assume suffering. Suffering is a gospel category. This doesn't mean fatalism or pessimism. But the gospel assumes suffering because the gospel starts with the problem of sin. And we see this in our passage this morning. Paul talks about the problem, the problem side of the gospel. The problem is this, we are ungodly. We are sinners, it says in verse 8. And then in verse 10, it says a phrase that is incredibly hard for us to wrap our heads around, many of us. We are enemies of God. That's the basic starting point of the biblical narrative for our lives and the world around us. We are enemies of God, and therefore we're separated from God. And because of that, we're separated from others, from creation itself, and even from ourselves at times. We and the world around us and creation itself is broken. See, the gospel gives us that category that assumes that suffering exists. We don't assume ease and prosperity because our gospel starts with a broken world and we see it every step we take. We see it in the injustices around the world, in the sinfulness of our lives. We see it in the way that our very bodies are decaying every year. Well, after 20 or 21 But the gospel gives us a pattern for suffering. It's called the cross. You see, even as the problem is presented, so is the solution given. And the solution is the way of the cross. It's the way of death. For at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, it says in verse 6. Verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, we were enemies, but we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Redemption, salvation, restoration, reconciliation, things are made right through Jesus' death on the cross. This tells us that God has purpose in suffering. Even the unjust suffering of his son, the death of his son on the cross, accomplished a greater purpose. Which means the gospel not only gives us a category for suffering, it suggests that God redeems and saves through suffering. That there is a redemptive purpose even in suffering. So first, suffering. Then he says suffering produces what? Next, endurance. Suffering produces endurance. 
The gospel, when we drown ourselves in it, when we really soak it up, the gospel provides perspective in life. And oftentimes, one of the biggest challenges in suffering and in living is keeping perspective. You see, apart from God, we tend to lose perspective. The nihilist who says there's no meaning has no assurance of eternal life, or or that there is no eternal life. The moralist has no assurance of it. And so they live without hope. And it's much harder, it's much harder to endure suffering, especially over the long haul, if there's no hope of eternity on the end. No hope that God has a plan and a purpose. But the gospel says life has a purpose. We are made to live eternally and God wants each of us to know him and enter into that eternal life. In Romans 5.10, the phrase that's used is we shall be saved by his life. That's talking about future eternal life as a result of Jesus' own resurrection. Think about that. We, we just mentioned that, that the cross gives us the, the description of suffering that can be redeemed. The resurrection gives us the hope of eternal life on the far side of the cross. And the same is true for our own lives. Even if our bodies are decaying, even if we are feeling alone, even if we've dealt with great pain, the resurrection says there's something beyond the 50 or 70 or 90 years that we have. There's something that lasts forever, and it's ours because of Christ's resurrection. This is so much so that Paul was able to say in Romans 8.18, something that, again, I can't get my head around, when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul has dealt with an incredibly hard life. He had been nearly executed a half dozen times. And he says, oh, remember when they threw stones at me and thought I was dead? Remember when I was drowned in the ocean and had been shipwrecked? Remember when they beat me senseless with whips? Light and momentary compared to the eternity that is to come. We develop endurance when we keep perspective and we keep trusting God in the long haul no matter what's happening in life. And when we have that gospel perspective, that eternal perspective, that long-term view, instead of focusing on escaping, the assurance of eternity enables us to endure and even endure hopefully. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. You see, the gospel, in many ways, reorients us. It reorients us because it reorients our priorities. What's important, why we're here, what we're after, and where it's all going. In Romans 5.2, Paul says, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So his joy, his hope, is in the glory of God. That phrase, glory of God, could be summed up as we rejoice in God and God's purposes being accomplished. In verses 10 and 11, he talks about his other hopefulness. 
in that while we were enemies, God reconciled us through his son. So now we have a restored relationship with God. He talks about being reconciled and having the spirit of God with him in such a way that that suggests he really gets to know God. When you've had a relationship reconciled, it means you're buds now, you're friends again. And Paul is saying his hope, his joy is in God's purposes being accomplished and experiencing and knowing God now. In other words, Paul's dream is not just ease. It's not just career success. It's not just avoiding health problems. It's not just a well-manicured lawn. It's not just getting into the college of your dreams. Because of the cross, Paul's very purpose in life, his priorities, are for the glory of God and to know and experience God. Last week, Will Cravens was preaching in Philippians 3, where another place where Paul describes his priorities, his goals in life. He says he threw off all of his career ambitions from his past, and he counts them as rubbish because what he wants instead, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to gain Christ and be found in Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The gospel can take our priorities in life and reorient them to say, I want to know and experience and be like Christ. And there's a connection between that sort of priority and dealing with suffering. The word that Paul uses for character in the Greek is a word that means tested, proven, qualified. So you can think about it in these ways. If somebody wants to be a lawyer, a practicing lawyer in the state of Virginia, they don't just get an ad on TV. You actually are supposed to pass the bar exam. Most people who pass the bar exam go to law school. And after law school, they spend weeks or months studying to pass the bar. Some people spend years retrying to pass the bar because you have to prove that you are qualified to practice law. If you're going to do Navy SEAL training, that Navy SEAL training is not just a quick check of the box. A lot of the training that's done is not just to prepare somebody, but it's to weed out the weak and unprepared. So that those who who fulfill all that's lined up for them in Navy SEAL training and are now Navy SEALs, they have proven themselves. They have gone through the tests. They have accomplished everything laid before them. So the idea of character is a maturity that is wrought through challenge, testing, and even suffering. Suffering can test and shape our character Christward in a way that nearly nothing else can. It's why Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, is able to talk about his own challenges that he was dealing with. And he says in the midst of this challenge that he was dealing with, he prayed that God would relieve him of this suffering. And the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. 
For when I am weak physically, emotionally, when I am dealing with suffering and not able to stand up on my own, then am I strong spiritually because then I am most reliant on God. If you want to develop a Christward character, if you want to look like and know and experience God more fully, suffering is the best pot to cook that meal in. If I'm going to make a big pot of Texas brisket chili to feed 20 people, and I have an omelet skillet and a crock pot and muffin tins, I need the right pot to cook the meal. And in a way, what Paul is talking about here, both in Philippians and in 2 Corinthians and in our passage in Romans 5, is that suffering is the right pot to cook the meal of a life that is experienced with God and looking more and more like Christ. Suffering, endurance, character, and lastly, hope. The gospel assures us that God loves us. The hope is described as this. We have hope. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the most painful parts of any suffering is when we do it alone. And our natural experience when we first are dealing with something is no one else is dealing with this like me. Nobody else has lost a spouse. Nobody else has dealt with this illness. Nobody else knows what it's like. And it's why therapists, psychologists will say it's so important to get with others who are dealing with the same thing. It's why organizations or groups like Al-Anon or divorce recovery groups or grief camps exist so that you don't have to feel like you're doing it alone. The gospel tells us that we are never alone. That not only does God identify with our suffering, but he loves us deeply and wants to walk with us in it. You see, the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ identifies with our suffering. He's just like one of us, and he loves us deeply and wants to be there with us. How does God demonstrate his love for us? Christ died for us. And God's love is poured out on us. This passage affirms that God loves you deeply, and he wants to walk with you in it. Not only that, but the gospel tells us that any suffering that we have gone through, Christ too knows what it's like. See, the good news of Jesus Christ, the salvation that he offers us, is through a cross, through his death. And in his suffering on the cross, the injustice and evil he dealt with, he also dealt with being alone and abandoned and forsaken so that none of us ever need to be. The gospel way is that of a cross. It's the hope that God is with us and redeeming us and will redeem us through our suffering. So how do we rejoice in our suffering? That phrase rejoice, that word rejoice in suffering, that that doesn't mean Uh, optimistic glee in suffering. It doesn't mean look for suffering. 
that word rejoice is the same word as boast. And it's asking this question. Where are you rejoicing is the question, where is your confidence? What is your source of hope? In what do you rejoice? You know, you can develop character, endurance, and even a hopeful outlook apart from the gospel. But your hope, your rejoicing, will be in you. Your boasting, your confidence, will be in you. Only in and through the gospel can we rejoice in suffering precisely because we are rejoicing in God and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the gospel, and that enables us to have confidence in God through suffering. There's two ways that we can approach suffering. There's the way of dealing with suffering that says, I'm okay, I don't need any help, or nothing matters, none of this matters, just deal with it. Or God owes me. And then there's Paul's way of astonished joy and rejoicing in the gospel and the hope that that gives him through his own suffering. One is the way of self-confidence. The other is the way of worship. Let's pray. God, we pray now, we gather up this time in prayer, especially for those in this room whose suffering is most acute, whose challenges in life are most painful and real. I pray that you would comfort and strengthen them. Let them know that they are not alone, that you love them and care for them and can identify with them in their challenges. And I pray, God, for all of us, that we would have hope and joy and rejoicing in you, that we would trust in your faithfulness to us and not put confidence in ourselves so that when we do face suffering of any kind, we might continue to rejoice in God and look forward to the hope of the resurrection through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Yeah.
great. 